funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child, and RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, hostage freed. A woman with New Jersey ties is released by Hamas in this week's prisoner exchange. Her father shares his seven week horror, waiting to find out whether she was dead or alive. My family's personal tragedy aside, there's still uh, many people who were hanging between the, the, the sky and the ground. My heart goes out to them. Also, New York Representative George Santos is expelled from Congress. The very fine line that Republicans are walking already with their majority gets even thinner. Two political analysts break down this historic event and all the other Jersey political news of the week. Plus, a tentative deal. After 120 days, RWJ University Hospital finally reaches an agreement with its 1,700 striking nurses. And a life of resiliency. The final episode of our 21 film series profiles Kashanda Marche, who's empowering others through self-belief in Union County. I owe it to them to be an example that, no, you are worthy, you are enough, you are beautiful. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJPBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us on this Friday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. The bloody conflict between Israel and Hamas has resumed after the collapse of a fragile seven-day truce with each side blaming the other. The Israeli military restarted airstrikes on Gaza, accusing Hamas of violating the ceasefire agreement by firing a rocket at Israel just before the deal expired. Hamas denies those claims. The temporary pause in fighting allowed for the release of more than 105 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip and 240 Palestinian prisoners and detainees from Israel. International mediators say the fresh combat complicates mediation efforts, but that negotiations are continuing with the aim of returning to a pause. Still, Israel's immediate bombing of Gaza has already killed another estimated 100 Palestinians, in addition to more than 13,000 total in the war, according to Gaza's health ministry. Israeli Defense Forces estimate 1,200 people were killed in the October 7th Hamas attack, and around 140 people are still being held captive. Those on the ground say they're bracing in agony for this next round of war, including Israeli-American Yehuda Benin. He tells our senior correspondent, Brenda Flanagan, his daughter was among the most recent hostages released. She's safe now at home, but his son-in-law is not. One is back and one is dead. For Yehuda Benin, a grueling wait ended in joy and grief. Hamas took his daughter Liat and her husband Aviv hostage during the October 7th terror attack at Kibbutz near Uz, where a quarter of the 400 residents were reported killed, captured or missing. Their family spent more than 50 days hoping for news, watching each hostage release. On Wednesday, Hamas finally let Liat go in the second-to-last exchange. Without a doubt, this has been one, one hell of a a roller coaster ride. 
on the one hand, uh, our daughter uh, was released from captivity in Gaza. But the family's joy lasted less than 24 hours before they got another phone call about Aviv. We were informed about the death of uh, Liat's husband, Aviv, on the first day of the uh, fighting on October 7th. And up until yesterday, my son-in-law, actually my son-in-law's body is still being held by Hamas. Benin's remained his family's solid rock of support throughout the emotional upheaval. They're spread out but close-knit. Benin grew up in Metuchen, attended Rutgers. So, as far as I'm concerned, I'm from New Jersey. His two daughters have dual citizenship. The family moved to Israel in 1982. Liat settled there. Daughter Tal lives in Oregon. They often vacationed in the U.S. together. Now they've gathered to plan Aviv's funeral. We'll mourn and rejoice together, as strange uh, and difficult as that, that is. Liat's dad calls his daughter very strong. The 49-year-old's got three kids aged 18 to 22. She's a high school teacher and a guide at Israel's Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem. Her family advocated with diplomats for Liat's release. He says she was fortunate. She was being held by a civilian employee of Hamas. Something like that. So, so he was, uh, the people who were holding her were being paid to hang on to her. Liat was held in relatively good conditions that no way reflects upon the situation for other hostages. Now that the week-long ceasefires come to a sudden end and hostage exchanges paused, his thoughts turn to the other families. People are terrified. Uh, to the ramifications of what renewed fighting means. He tried to describe the feeling of waiting without word to hear of a loved one in captivity. My family's personal tragedy aside, there's still uh, many people who were hanging between the, the sky and the ground, hanging in midair, we'd say in English, uh, and my heart goes out to them. Benin's critical of the Red Cross for not doing more to help the hostages, but the agency says it was denied access to them. He praised the Biden administration's negotiations and spoke with the president during a Zoom call. But he warned the current Israeli government will face a reckoning once the fighting stops. After that... The only thing left to do here is to figure out how to live together. He admits that could take generations. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. Meanwhile, it was a historic day for Congress. The House today voting to expel embattled New York Representative George Santos. All 12 of New Jersey's congressional members voted for his ouster. It's just the sixth time in U.S. history the chamber has kicked a member out, and it hasn't happened in more than 20 years. Here to talk about this and some of the other political headlines of the week are Republican strategist Chris Russell and Democratic strategist Dan Bryan. Dan and Chris, thanks so much. I want to start with this news of the day because it's it's a pretty big moment uh, in Congress. George Santos uh, has been expelled from the chamber. This is only the third time since the Civil War, according to just about every historian. And yet this is a saga that's been going on now since right after he got elected. Chris, why were Republicans hesitant to vote for his expulsion? Well, it's not, I don't think all Republicans were. I mean, I think uh, a lot of Republicans, including this one, uh, think he's a pretty contemptible human being. A lot of the things he said and did 
uh, are now going to be dealt with in a, a court of law, apparently, with these indictments coming down. Um, listen, there's a process to these things in Congress. Nothing moves quickly. Uh, certainly when it's something historic like this and, and expelling a member from the chamber um, is a somber thing, frankly, that, that someone is in there that should be expelled. But I think it was the right choice. And I think that George Santos being gone is probably something there's pretty broad bipartisan agreement on. Yeah, of course, Republicans did uh, vote in favor of his ouster today. There were, of course, charges uh, that he stole money from his own campaign, lied about his uh, family, about his career. But, Dan, what will this mean for Democrats now in terms of the razor-thin majority that exists in the House? Yeah, so the, the very fine line that Republicans were walking already with their majority gets even thinner. Um, I think that, you know, this is obviously a very extreme case with, with Congressman Santos, former Congressman Santos, um, given how crazy the whole situation was. Clearly, Republicans didn't want to be painted with him, uh, their entire majority, as they were going up for re-election next year and trying to keep and expand their majority. It's not going to stop Democrats from continuing to pay Republicans with someone like uh, George Santos, given that it took a year to deal with this. Clearly, Democrats, this is a conversation they've loved to have. They're going to continue having it despite this, this uh, happening today. All right, let me bring it back home. Congestion pricing. Everyone's talking about this, of course, whether you want folks to use mass transit or if you're someone who drives into the city. $15, uh, it's a lot of money. Chris, what are the political ramifications of this? We know a lot of elected officials in the state have been railing against it. Well, listen, I think when you see Governor Murphy, Congressman Gottheimer on this side of the river uh, and other people on the other side of the river, like Mike Lawler, Republican congressman, and others, uh, all on the same page on this against congestion pricing, against this commuter tax is really what it is. Um, you know that it's it's certainly bad for people who have to drive in and out of the city all the time. And yeah, I think we all would like to see less, uh, you know, certainly good things for the environment, but hammering the people who already pay the highest taxes and the highest cost of living in the country with yet another, frankly, another tax uh, is just out of, out of the question, it's certainly not politically popular. So I think pretty broad, again, bipartisan support on both sides of the river for this, for people who don't live in the city. Dan, this was an issue that came up even while you were in uh, the administration working under the governor. So what do you suppose the conversations are now? Listen, the, the biggest issue that Governor Murphy has had with the congestion pricing scheme uh, was less the policy uh, in theory um, it was more in practice. This was done without input from New Jersey. This is done in a way that is that unfairly impacts New Jersey commuters. So I think there's a way that this could have been done with, to, to gain everyone's support, including from this side of the river. The way it was done kind of jammed it down New Jersey's throats. As Chris said, it unfairly impacts New Jersey commuters. And it's an, it's an unfair tax. And listen, I, I think there's still a long way to go to make sure this is successful from their point of view. And there's no doubt that Governor Murphy and, and people like Congressman Gottheimer are going to continue to stay at this 24-7. Let me say with you, Dan, safe to say, yes, that you are working on First Lady Tammy Murphy's Senate campaign. Safe, safe to say. Okay. So uh, let's talk about this research that came out from Rutgers professor Julius Sassrubin looking into the party line. We all know what this is. Uh, the First Lady got a number of uh, additional endorsements this week, not to mention uh, Essex County Executive Joe DiVincenzo, um, a number of black ministers and activists. So is it an unfair positioning for folks who have this political clout? Um, do you agree with that assessment or disagree? Listen, the, the county line was there far uh, before Tammy Murphy and, for that matter, Governor Murphy got involved in New Jersey politics. 
I would think it's probably going to be there afterwards as well. I think it's unfair, you know, and a bit cynical to pin the entire system on her right now. Listen, the most important thing for her is making change for New Jersey, delivering for working families, continuing to make the change that she's been able to make over the last six years. Um, I think, again, the the play coming out of others in this campaign are a bit cynical, especially those who have been elected on the county line before multiple times. All of a sudden, this is, you know, it, they're trying to put it at Tammy's feet. Um, I would say what she's focused on right now, one of the reasons she's been able to build the support that she has up and down the state, she's been there. She's helped build the party. She's helped deliver for people. She's made relationships. She's built those relationships with people all over, not just party officials, by the way, faith leaders, community leaders, advocates, a lot of those folks and those voices have come out to support her as well. There's been a bit of an outsized focus on her here. I think to the extent people want to have that conversation, they can have that, but that should be divorced from this uh, current primary. Chris, your response? Well, listen, I mean, and I respect Dan, you know, as I was working on the campaign, as close to the Murphys. Um, no, he's he's right that it shouldn't be laid at her feet exclusively. She didn't create the lines. She's benefited from them. But in this case, it's it's crazy to say she's not benefiting from being the governor's wife and having that clout and being able to kind of maneuver people uh, to support her and fall into line. Uh, listen, the I've worked against the line a few times. I've worked for the line a lot. It's an advantage. Uh, there's no two ways about it. It's why people work so hard to win these conventions and win these uh, support of certain uh, power brokers and stakeholders across the state. I would say, however, I think it's a fantastic talking point for Andy Cam, and I think one that he will use with great uh, effect. Uh, the one thing I don't think we've seen in the state in a while is someone who's been completely shut out of the lines, which appears Andy Kim will most likely be, or, or close to it, who's been able to mount the kind of campaign with the resources uh, and the organizing skills that he has. I worked against the guy in 2018, uh, lost a very narrow race, but I gained a respect for him in that regard. He is not to be taken lightly, and I'm sure Dan and company won't, because if they do, they could rue the day they did. Uh, and I think it's a great talking point for him. Political strategist Chris Russell and Dan Bryan, thank you both so much. Thank you so much. After nearly four months on the picket line, Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital and its striking nurses have reached an agreement. Union and hospital leaders today said they've worked out terms for a new contract 120 days after the hospital's 1,700 nurses first walked off the job. Now, details aren't being revealed, but the head of the nurses union said in a statement today, the contract includes enforceable safe staffing standards for the very first time. That was a sticking point in the negotiations, but it's still not a done deal. The nurses, who are represented by United Steelworkers 4200, have to ratify the agreement, which could happen as early as next week. And both sides have been here before, reaching a contract agreement back in July that was rejected by union members leading to the strike. Since then, the hospital says it spent more than $120 million on replacement nurses to keep the facility running, while nurses have been without paychecks and health benefits. A spokesperson for the hospital today said this latest contract agreement, quote, reflects our shared goals of providing the highest quality patient care and creating a safe and supportive working environment for our nurses. In our Spotlight on Business report, the state of New Jersey will have to cough up $26 million in tax incentives for Holtec International. 
An appeals court on Thursday ruled in favor of the energy technology company in its long legal battle with the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, which accused Haltech of misleading state officials when the company applied for a $260 million incentive package back in 2014. The EDA accused Haltech of exaggerating a competing offer from South Carolina and found the company left out that it was disbarred from doing work in New Jersey for 60 days in 2010. At the time, Holtec said the omission was an oversight, but the state in 2018 said it was a contract violation and withheld the tax credits after the program came under scrutiny. The appeals court this week agreed with the lower court ruling that the application was confusing and the EDA was to blame. Turning now to Wall Street, here's how the markets closed for the week. Tune in this weekend to NJ Business Speed with Raven Santana. She looks at how New Jersey is preparing for the growth of artificial intelligence, as well as the wide-ranging uses for the technology, including security at schools and boardwalks. Watch it Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday morning at 9.30 on NJPBS. Tonight, we're posting the final episode in our 21 digital film series. The project examines the simple question of does where you live in the state affect how you live? 21 profiles one person in each of our 21 counties and looks at the social determinants that affect that person's life. This last film introduces us to Union County's Kashanda Marche. Kashanda is living with HIV. She's struggled with mental health issues, but along the way, she discovered her authentic self. This fueled her mission to combat the stigma and ignite her passion for community outreach in Rahway, empowering others through daily affirmations and self-belief, proving that resiliency defines us, not always the challenges we face. I had the pleasure to meet her and hear her story. Kashanda, I'm so honored to get to talk to you. You have lived quite a life. How do you go from, I've heard you describe it as being uh, confused, scared, mad uh, about some of the health issues that you've gone through to becoming a voice of empowerment? It was quite, or is quite the, um, the journey one that I never really could have imagined for my life. Um, there was a moment where I felt I had no future. And so that was a pretty dark place. And so to go from all the things that go along with living in such a dark place, because that I can go on and on about that, but that transition, that moment when you begin to see yourself as worthy and you get to start believing in yourself that you can be bigger, you can be better, you can do better. And when you finally see yourself as being more than any diagnosis or any illness or any stigma, when you can begin to see yourself as more than that, your whole world changes, the whole world around you changes. 
And so for me, I feel like to have experienced such a gift, even with all the bad things that, you know, happened, I, I owe it to the next person that may be living in such a dark place or not have that belief in themselves or feel like they are worthy to be loved. I owe it to them to be an example that, no, you are worthy, you are enough, you are beautiful, you know, you deserve love, and you can be better. And you do that now for other women and girls. You give them these mental wellness tools, you call them, sure. which I, I really like. It's not mental health tools, mental wellness tools. Yes. What do you do in the nonprofit um, that you created? And how do you see that really giving this generation of folks who have challenges in front of them the ability to not just overcome, but to live their best life? Yes, yes. Well, first of all, you have to recognize that the creation of Creative on Purpose. That's your nonprofit. That's the name of the nonprofit, Creative with a K, on Purpose, right? And you, you said it, we, we, we provide mental wellness tools. Um, mental wellness is so much more than just your, you know, mental capacity. It is the link to every other part of life. And so we feel like by creatively offering different tools that can help you, you know, build your self-esteem, learn about self-esteem, find your own voice, going down a road of self-discovery, um, self-awareness. If we can help build your confidence and your strength in these areas, then you become unstoppable. And so affirmations are a part of it. A big part of it is just leading by example, just kind of demonstrating and, and owning my story in a way to where I'm not ashamed of it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that that is the best way to kind of show people themselves. It's life changing for them. And that, that's the best thing that I can do and put forward is it's just living the life that 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 God has purpose for me. Because, I mean, there's been countless times where I mean, I faced death so well, many you, occasions. You were diagnosed with HIV as a new mom. Yes. You went through multiple brain surgeries. Yes. You lost your ability to walk. Yes. You use a wheelchair. Yes. Uh, now for for quite a few years. Yeah, since 2019, it was official that my legs just totally was like, okay, that's it. You know, um, a couple years prior to that, I had a little slow walk. I was using mobility aids, a walker, and a cane, and and I mean that adjustment. It's just it just has been um, starting over, readjustment, realignment like one after another, yeah. after another, after another. A lot of people would have just been like, I'm down, I'm out. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been there. I've been there multiple times, but something deep inside of me kept lifting me up because I knew I, I didn't have the strength to do it. And I used to be one that spoke more than I listened. Sometimes you can't tell, <laughs> but I do, you know, yeah. and that's something that you give a person. Like, people that feel unheard, 
when you finally give them a moment to be heard, it is life-changing. And so I have to ask then, how did growing up in Union County shape how you pursued your life to get to this point? I received services from, from, from Union County because there were times in my life where I had to live with my parents, you know, these health ups and downs. Mm -hmm. There's so many resources and things available, and I just, I appreciate, you know, just for me it's a blessing, you know, when you get to experience um, different ways of life. Well, not, one, not necessarily that one is better than the other, you know, we just have different ways of life. Kashanda, you are a blessing, uh, and oh, to everyone who you. you've been able to help, thank you for sharing your story, and thank you so much for being part of this 21 series. Oh, thank you. It's been a wonderful experience. I appreciate it, and thank you for having me. You can see our full interview and Kashanda's piece of the 21 film series, along with all of the other extraordinary Jersey residents featured in the 21 series at myNJPBS.org 21. That's going to do it for us tonight. This weekend, be sure to tune in to Reporters Roundtable. David Cruz talks to Rutgers University professor Julia Sass-Rubin about her new research on the power of the party line and how it could affect the race for U.S. Senate. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday morning at 10. And on Chatbox, David looks at top frustrations for residents using the roads, rails, and buses. He asks experts whether commuters should expect fare hikes and toll increases in the new year. That's Saturday at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. on NJPBS. I'm Brianna Venozzi. For all of us at NJ Spotlight News, thanks for being here. Have a great weekend. We'll see you back here on Monday. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. And by the PSCG Foundation. Our future relies on more than clean energy. Our future relies on empowered communities, the health and safety of our families and neighbors, of our schools and streets. The PSEG Foundation is committed to sustainability, equity, and economic empowerment. Investing in parks, helping towns go green, supporting civic centers, scholarships, and workforce development that strengthen our community.